You're listening to Inside the Village, where all news is local and no topic is off limits. So help me, Bob, it's Bully in the Alley. This is Inside the Village for the week of June 14th, 2023. I'm Scott Sexsmith. Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media, is uh, in the studio, as is Derek Turner, Executive Producer of the show. Good to be back. How are things? Excellent. Very, very busy day. Holy cow. And we're going to get to that yeah, in a minute. Very busy. Okay, I have to ask, uh, Sunday, tell me you watched the Canadian Open. I did not watch the Canadian Open. I know everybody keeps asking me if I watch that. Apparently there's big putt. A lot of Canadians jumped on the green. It was, uh, it, 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 you know what? It, I'm not going to lie. I shed a tear. You did? I did. But you're, all, you're always crying. I'm, <laughs> I'm, what does that even mean? I'm always, I'm an emotional person. You are. I'm in touch with my, uh, what's, what, I'm in touch with my emotions. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. Clearly. But to have a, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Look, I'll be the smart ass here. <laughs> to have a Canadian win the Canadian Open for the first time in 54 years. Yeah. Um, and to have him come from behind, uh, I certainly didn't have Nick Taylor uh, on the bingo card. Uh, but to win in that dramatic fashion, sinking a 72-foot putt mm-hmm. on the fourth playoff hole against Tommy Fleetwood, uh, unimaginable. In the rain? Was there rain? Or there was a slight drizzle. Slight yes. drizzle, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just keep – I know that there was all the news about Liv and their, the, the two tours have come together now, and that was the big news dominating the Canadian Open. Yeah, and you know what? You had to feel bad uh, badly for uh, for RBC and for the Canadian Open because now this is two years in a row, two tournaments in a row, uh, that the event has been overshadowed by Liv. Last year, it was the announcement of Liv and players defecting uh, to this uh, to this new tournament uh, or this new league. And then this year, it's the uh, the merging uh, of of the European Tour, Liv, um, and of course the uh, the PGA Tour. So, uh, RBC, just a wonderful sponsor of uh, of golf, um, overshadowed. I'm uh, sure a lot of people shed a tear for RBC. <laughs> well, people are often feeling bad for the big bank. Yeah, that's. <laughs> It's <laughs> a good point. It's a fair point. Anyway, good for Nick. Well, Taylor. some of those interviews, there would have been an RBC local behind them as they're talking to what this guy thinks of Live and what that guy thinks of Live, wouldn't they? About well, of the, course, the big yeah. billboards behind. Oh yeah, yeah, lots I'm of sure billboards. Okay. RBC logos on the shirts. Yeah, I'm sure they did okay. But still, for for Canada, it's it's the yeah, one no, it's national good. event. It's our national open. Um, but to have it won by a Canadian. I'll tell just, you, well, it shows you how little I watch golf these days. But what, the, the headline that struck me the most was, oh, Mike Weir had a good tournament too. <laughs> and I saw this picture of Mike Weir. And he, he was 59 years old. Is that what they said? 57 years yeah, old? Yeah. Uh, Weirsy, as they call him, uh, you know, <laughs> former Masters champion from 2003, had a fantastic tournament. Actually, all the Canadians, I think, uh, uh, did very well. But imagine, we, like Mike Weir's in his 50s. That's uh, crazy. The the guy who stole the show and, and probably didn't want to in this fashion was Adam Hadwin. Uh, so what happens, uh, once the guys are done playing, they get changed out of their golf attire, put their street clothes on and, and they're following, you know, Nick in the playoff against Fleetwood. Uh, so Nick makes the putt and Hadwin runs onto the green with a bottle of champagne to celebrate. Security guard doesn't recognize him and tackles him like a linebacker in the NFL, <laughs> right body slam down on the green because he didn't recognize him. So you've got Nick Taylor, you've got Nick Taylor's caddy trying to, you know, peel the security guard off of uh, Hadwin uh, because the poor guy didn't uh, didn't recognize him without his uh, without his RBC logo on his That's hat. That's pretty I guess. funny, actually. That's yeah. pretty funny. 
Anyway, it was uh, it was a cool story and uh, good for Nick Taylor. Okay, uh, first word to Frisco. Breaking news out of the Trillium today. Yeah, we've been talking about this all day. Um, uh, you should be reading. It. You'll be able to read about it by now on the Trillium. Um, another big scoop uh, regarding Doug Ford from Charlie Pinkerton and our editor in chief Jessica Smith Cross uh, quarterbacking over there. Um, but essentially, the integrity commissioner is looking into a lobbying firm of Doug Ford's longtime right hand man, uh, Amin Masudi. And uh, Charlie lays out all the stuff he's learned about what the integrity commissioner is looking into and why. Um, it's a fascinating read and, and just another window into sort of behind the scenes politics that happens at Queen's Park. Uh, so definitely you want to check that out on the Trillium. Another uh, behind the scenes moment, courtesy of the 800 pound gorilla, as friend yeah. of the show Vic Fidelli uh, calls right. him. Uh, okay, to Guelph and Canada's uh, smallest bar, unfortunately receiving a little bit of bad news this week. I love this story, right? We read about it uh, months ago, and it's Canada's smallest bar. And what's it called again? Standing room only. Standing, I don't know why I keep forgetting that. Standing room. Like it's literally probably smaller than this. Room yeah. And it's not nine people. Nine people. <laughs> yeah. So they, I guess they asked the city for the right to, the permission to put out a, a licensed patio. And uh, the city's committee of adjustment has basically said, no, we're not going to allow for that minor variance. You can have a patio apparently, but not a licensed patio. So I don't know. You could go there and get a Diet Coke, I guess. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad news. But for a fascinating story. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of fascinating, uh, another newsworthy landlord out of Sault Ste. Marie. For sure. If you live in the Sioux, you've been following this reporting. Uh, James Hopkins has been writing about uh, a lot of landlords in town. Specifically, last year, we had a landlord who was fined $120,000 for fire code violations. And if you remember the story, we had to go to court to get the documents and find out who it is because the city's fire department wouldn't tell us. So last week, out of the blue, they issue another press release saying another landlord has been fined $95,000 for various fire code violations. But again, we're not going to tell the public or, God forbid, the people who might live in this building where these fire code violations are. We're not going to tell you who it is. So again, James goes back to court, pulls the property records, finds out who the owner is. It's a it's a company from in the Barrie area, uh, phones them up. And the president of the company says, well, this is the first I've heard of it. I have no, no idea what's happening. I'm going to file an appeal, right? It's like this has been winded through the courts and he was found guilty in absentia. So, you know, again, I say the same thing on every week on the show, but this is the the importance of local journalism, right? No question. I can, I can only explain to you that when that initial story went up saying about the fine, Facebook lit up with, well, who's the landlord? Why don't we know who he is? Why don't they tell us? Well, that's journalism's job to go and find the facts and tell people in the community who that landlord is because they have the right to know that. That's that's not a $5 parking ticket this person no. had. $95,000 in fire code violations means that the fire department was concerned that people's lives were at risk. And so I'm proud of that kind of reporting. We're seeing it across the chain all the time. Uh, and it's the reason people turn to us. Absolutely. And good on James for uh, digging it up and uh, chasing that story down. Okay. Speaking of fires, today on the show, uh, fires uh, literally, uh, figuratively all around us uh, in the province of Ontario and in fact, right across uh, the country for that matter. Uh, Eric Kennedy, the Associate Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management from York University uh, is going to join us. Uh, should be an interesting chat. I can't wait. All right. Eric Kennedy joins us next when we return on Inside the Village right after this. Reporters, editors, and journalists who go the extra mile to get the story and get it right. Go behind the scenes with those who cover the stories that matter most to you and your community. Look for it in the Village Features section of your favorite Village Media website across Ontario.
Welcome back to Inside the Village. I'm Scott Sexsmith alongside Village Media Editor-in-Chief Michael Friscalanti, joined on the line from the United Kingdom by uh, Eric Kennedy, the Associate Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management at York University. Eric, good of you to join us on Inside the Village. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, let's talk uh, fires, uh, Eric. Forest fires are an annual event. Why are we not better prepared for them? They certainly are a regular occurrence here in Canada. Um, we routinely deal with fires across the country, and much of the country has evolved to depend on forest fire. A lot of our ecosystems need this for their survival and their health. And so it is an essential part of the landscapes across our country. Um, that being said, we do see stressors each year and different ways that fire can challenge us. So some years we have a lot of fires. Some years we have a really tragic fire that comes through a community. Um, and other years like this year, we just have a lot of area covered by fire. Um, this year is very much a year of big fires, and that's reflected in our total area burned, as well as the smoke events that we've been seeing um, across the country and drifting into the U.S., I think it's the largest in a century. Is that right? This is the most, the biggest fires we've had in, in more than 100 years? Yeah, we've just crossed about four and a half million hectares burned, which is wow. um, well above typical for us. It's a, a huge landmass. So the obvious question is, is there many, probably multiple answers to this, but why? Why is it the biggest one in 100 years? Yeah, so the big thing you've got to remember is that this is a bunch of different forces multiplying together. Anyone who tells you it's one single story is selling something, it's a bunch of factors that are all combining and, and are greater than the sum of their parts when they multiply on each other. So there is a climate rule, for instance. Um, because of climate change, we can deal with seasons that run longer, that are hotter, that are drier, and that plays a huge part. That also taxes the institutions and the responders that we have dealing with this. If they're dealing with longer seasons, if they're go, go, go from fire to fire, that can exhaust folks and exhaust our apparatus. But there are also other issues that multiply with that climate factor. So, for instance, where we build, right, where we put our homes and our infrastructure and our communities, that affects this because the more people we have living at the interface or mixed in with forested environments, the more people need protecting and, and the more um, impressive that protection has to be. And so these kinds of factors really multiply together to increase the fire load as well as the sort of demand on the response for our country. Uh, Eric, I was going to wait to bring up uh, climate and climate change, but you you opened the door, so I'll walk through it. Uh, the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, boxed at the whole climate change theory uh, and, in fact, says the real enemy is arson. Uh, what's your reaction uh, to this? Yeah, um, arson <laughs> does occur, um, and it, it, along with all sorts of human ignitions, are things that we need to prevent. Um, and so there absolutely is that typical message you hear of like, make sure your campfires are out. Make sure that you're really cautious when you're out there on an ATV because that can accidentally start a fire. If you're in industry, make sure that um, if you're in a railroad or a timber yard that you're following the protocols and best practices because human caused fires are a huge problem. It varies from location to location across the country. So in Nova Scotia, it's the vast majority of fires. In say, northern Alberta, it's a much lower fraction. Um, but human fires play a role. Arson is only a small component of those human fires, though, and typically sits in the sort of 
low to mid single digits. The estimates I've seen range between about two and eight percent of fires. Um, and so it, it does occur, but these are not a driving force and it is certainly not the area burned. Arson fires tend to occur where people are in the south of the provinces, where we have a lot of firefighters ready. And so it doesn't explain the big fires that we see in the north in a typical season. So on a, in a season like this where it's, it's, it's much larger than we've seen in, in other years, how does the priority – I think it's an obvious question, but how does the priority how – how do they triage, I guess, is my question. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and we've seen lots of years where we just don't have enough capacity to respond to the fires. That would be an, an enormous, enormous whole of society mobilization to try and come up with that capacity bigger than any war effort you could imagine to try to suppress every fire in Canada. Um, it would just be outlandish. And so triage does have to happen. And that could be because you have a lot of little fires starting, or it could be because you have a lot of big fires going simultaneously. Um, for fire management agencies, the priority is always protecting life and property first. And so they go hard and fast against those fires that pose a risk to communities, that pose a risk to infrastructure. Those are the fires that they're trying to tackle quickly, immediately, and keep contained. What it means is is that sometimes if there's a fire in a more remote area, a fire where those impacts might not be as directly felt, that fire might be a little bit low on the priority list as they're working to protect life and property. Now, in reality, it's a little bit more complicated than that. We also are trying to work in um, the beneficial ecological effects. So are there places where the fire should be allowed to burn to help the environment or the ecosystem? There might also be different kinds of values that they're trying to protect. So maybe hunting grounds or in, uh, traditional indigenous territory, they might be trying to tackle a, a fire to prevent a huge smoke load. And so there can be different um, reasons that play into that complexity. But at the end of the day, the fire management agent Agencies are really built to protect life and to protect property first. Some of the reporting I've read uh, over the last month, including from from our reporters, is about how stretched the fire services are, especially in Ontario, right? There's been talk in the last couple of years about how a lot of people have left the profession because it's, mm-hmm. you know, from lack of a better term, from burnout, right? So there's a shortage of, of qualified people to do the work. We're also hearing problems or questions about whether we have enough uh, uh, of water bombers, for example, to do the job we need to do. I mean, what do you hear in terms of, of let's stick with the labor shortage? Do we have enough people who are trained to do this kind of work? Yeah, so there there are some challenges there. Um, the seasonality that you're hinting at is is a real challenge. Retaining people between seasons, and especially if this is a job you're doing as a student, and then maybe thinking about different paths after that. And so the agencies are thinking a lot about retention and how you can um, keep that skill in the organization. And and sometimes that involves broadening out. Um, and so there have been a number of agencies that have been working to bring in more indigenous fire uh, fighters along the way as as a way of having that capacity there in an ongoing sense and using that expertise and that mastery of fire as well. Um, But it it is a challenge with retention and making sure that um, you have that knowledge and that experience within the fire service. Another piece to remember is that no individual province can realistically staff for the worst case scenario. Um, And so the way the Canadian system works, and I think it's actually a really important factor, is through mutual aid and sharing. We loan equipment to each other during our times of need. And so if Alberta is having a really bad fire season, the country comes together to support that. And then in a future year when Ontario has that really bad season, Alberta comes and supports us. 
Um, and that is a really effective system for making sure that we have capacity across the country and for getting experience for firefighters from different provinces. You get an opportunity to work in different geographies and different settings and upskill that way. And so that system is is really important and effective, but it's only as strong as, as all the provinces that are contributing to it. And so it's important that every province continue to invest in their own capacity so that it's available to share during these peak loads. Talk about sharing just earlier this week uh, in Quebec because of the situation there and, and our aging fleet of water bombers, they had to bring some in from Montana. So it's not just a within Canada, it's it's a countries helping countries. Yeah, and you do kind of see that uh, from Europe, right? We've seen, I think they have some European firefighters that have come over to Ontario as well. Am I accurate on that? Yeah, we often bring in fire management personnel from Australia, from Europe. We have a lot of support from the states. Um, there's also sharing that happens in Mexico and South Africa, where we have firefighters coming in from those contexts. And so this global sharing is is really important. And there are some great mechanisms for doing that through the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre. Mm-hmm. They do just impressive work to keep that moving all season long. It is pretty amazing to watch from the outside. Uh, we're up in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and with, so there's a lot of water bombers at the airport here and just to watch them do their thing. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, you know, I guess we can expect that, I think we can expect that summers like this may be more the norm than not the norm going forward, right? With, for all the reasons you talked about earlier. You're an expert in, in emergency management uh, and prepa- preparedness. What do we need to do differently to maybe be better prepared in, say, a decade from now? Yeah, it's a big, big challenge, but there are a few things that we can take on. So, number one, we have to keep investing in the fire response infrastructure that we have and make sure that that retention's there, the equipment is there and ready, the personnel are there. That is is absolutely an important part. We also have to look, though, at building resilient communities, right? We are seeing the ways that fire is going to roll through many of our neighborhoods and many of our, our the places we care about. Um, and so making sure that we're building them in a way that um, is is able to be easily defended, we're able to be resilient when the fire arrives is critical. And so that's things like building codes and standards, but it's also maintenance of property and, and making sure you have the fire breaks and all of the fire smart activities that we would talk about. We also have to be ready for coupled disasters, the way that these can link up. So a flood after a fire, for instance, can be really damaging because of some of the runoff that that you get from the ash and, and the burnt material. Um, you can also have have these kinds of overlapping events where you have a heat emergency and a fire happening simultaneously. And so jurisdictions have to be ready for these intersecting disasters to occur at the same time. Uh, Eric, before we let you go, I want to give you some props here and, and uh, talk about one of your areas of expertise is preparing communities for future fire events and the role that ethics and values play within fire. Can, can you kind of dumb that down for Frisco and I and tell us what that means and, and explain it a little bit? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I talk a lot about is is the fact that fire science can help us, but we do have to have the difficult conversations about what we're trying to achieve and how we want to get there, right? Fire response is an expensive operation, for example, and we as a society need to talk about how much we want to invest, how much more we want to put into this, and how we can use money effectively. Um, We continue to build communities in really risky places, whether that's in floodplains or whether that's in 
fiery landscapes. And we have to have some tough conversations about um, if we think that is a wise idea or, or how we could build there in wiser ways, ways that we could maybe adapt the building codes again or the design um, or the kinds of properties that we're building there to make sure that we're more fire resilient. And so I think sometimes in the quest for statistics and science, we lose some of these questions of what are we trying to achieve and what's the best way of getting there. And we've got to have those conversations sometimes. That's a great point. I, I, I have wondered that, right? Because, you know, you obviously want to put all the resources you can, like you said, to protect people's lives and to protect property. But sometimes you, there is a risk that a person takes to say, I'm going to live here. This is where I'm going to live out in this area where there may be a forest fire, for example. Is that something we need to, as a society need to be thinking more of when we start thinking about where we're going to live, for example? Yeah, and it's a conversation that's quite active. Out of California, for example, we've heard about insurance companies pulling out from insuring some of these properties. Mm -hmm. And there are no easy answers here, right? If you don't make insurance available, you have people who are really vulnerable and precarious if a fire event occurs. And, and many people choose to live in these places for quite reasonable reasons, whether that's because they've always been there, because they have a connection to the land, because that's where they can afford to live. Um, because that's where they want to work. And, and so there are no simple answers to this question, but it's important to have these deliberations and conversations in a thoughtful and meaningful way so that we can talk about some of the trade-offs and we can think about how to do this more wisely. So if we do want to live in proximity to a forest, how can we build our homes and our roads and our urban planning in a way that's going to make it easier for firefighters to do their job, make it less likely for fire to come through in the first place, and increase the odds that a property will be there to come back home to after the fire event occurs. All right. Good stuff. Eric Kennedy, Associate Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management at York University. Good to see you, Eric. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks so much for having me. From newsmakers to celebrities to other prominent guests, you'll find them all on Village Media's new interview series, Up Close and Personal. Join host Scott Sexsmith as he goes one-on-one with well-known Canadians to hear their story. Up Close and Personal. Look for it on your favourite Village Media website across Ontario. Back to wrap on another episode of uh, Inside the Village. Uh, smart guy, Eric Kennedy. Uh, love when we get to have uh, meaningful, uh, engaging conversations about important topics like that. Yeah, that's the goal of the podcast, to kind of go a bit behind the headlines. And I mean, he actually paid us a compliment at the end. I don't know if he was lying or not, but he, he said he really appreciated He's kind of done the rounds with some media and he yeah. appreciated the thoughtful questions a little bit deeper. So. I wasn't sure if we were being punked. I was looking for, what's his name, Ashton Kutcher, to jump out. and I know. We'll tell you, or he probably got off the call and was like, oh, thank God I'm done with those guys. But (laughs) but you know what? We'll take the compliment when we can get it. So, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I learned a lot from that conversation, so that's something. Absolutely. And uh, feel free to uh, reach out to us uh, anytime uh, at itv at villagemedia.ca. It's nice to see the uh, the number of emails uh, that we're getting now. I know that we we joked and, and, and mocked when we first started, but, uh, man, it's been busy. Yeah, a lot of great stuff and a lot of interesting topics. I keep thinking now we've done enough of these shows that – something will happen in the news and we'll say, oh, let's go back and look at, you know, remember yeah. who we spoke to about this issue or, or reach back out to that person. And uh, that's the great thing. We want to have conversations on this show that we hope that the listeners will walk away and say, oh, I know more than I did about that issue yep. after listening to ITV. So that's Absolutely. the goal. 
ITV at villagemedia.ca. Uh, back episodes, uh, everybody knows this, but here's the reminder. You can get them across the Village Media Network at insidethevillage.ca and, of course, wherever you get your favorite podcast. Each and every episode of Inside the Village is produced executively by Mr. Derek Turner. He'll be back next week, as will Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media, and I'm Scott Sexsmith. Have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you next Wednesday. You've been listening to Inside the Village. Frisco and Scott's wardrobe, provided in part by Moore's Sault Ste. Marie.